0: Second Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to read verse 11 down to verse number 16. The Bible tells us here, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and we trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that you may have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God. Or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. If you'd read verse 15 with me again. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Father, we thank you again for your word. It is a high privilege to have your word in our hands. We don't want to take that for granted. Thank you for the faithfulness of your people being here tonight. Bless all those that are in attendance. We do lift up Brother Bob and Arthur and others that are dealing with health Needs and I pray that you would minister your grace into their lives. Father, we thank you for the uh, many souls who've been baptized, even in the last week, eight souls and, and another joining, and, and all the kids and, and teens that are being taught the word of God this evening. Pray that you would bless, Lord, and may your word accomplish all your desire, uh, transform lives, save souls, and, and glorify your own name here tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, Man, you may be seated this evening. Last week I preached on the motivation of the Christian life, and I know um, when I look back upon my life, when I, when I got saved and truly surrendered to the Lord, the Bible says that you're filled with the Spirit. There's a difference between the baptism and the filling of the Spirit. The baptism happens at salvation, the filling can be repeated and, and the filling of the Spirit is what Ephesians 5:18 speaks of, and it's and it's something that it simply would mean to be controlled by the Spirit, that you would that He would sit in the driver's seat, that He would control your life, and and there is such a such a zeal that so often we feel in that what could be called the honeymoon stage of your Christian life. Sometimes, as the years pass on, uh, those those strong feelings can somewhat fade. Uh, and, and I don't think that's always a bad thing because uh, I think, as I mentioned last week, I think God gives you such a such an influx of spiritual adrenaline to get you on the right road and pull you out of some things. Uh, but but he, he doesn't. You can't live on adrenaline. But you in the honeymoon stage isn't is, is, is cyclical in that sense. So you you move more into a mature love as you do in any relationship. And, and so uh, you begin to read and study and pray and evangelize, serve and sacrifice for the Lord. And, and, and you begin to build your life on truth instead of just just a passionate feeling. Uh, you, you, you love God and your, your life is, is built on the truth of God's word. And, and it's, it's, it, feelings can come and go all throughout life. Uh, but when I was an early Christian, I would read faithfully when I felt like it. Uh, today I read faithfully, it doesn't matter how I feel. So there's a difference in the maturity of that. So growing in the Lord, growing in the maturity, and uh, and, I, and that's, a, that's an important process. Now, the Apostle Paul uh, gives us some defining motivations for the Christian life. And, and, and really for us to be able to accomplish anything in life, you have to have a motivation to start whatever you're doing, and then you have to have enough motivation to finish it. And He gives us really four motivations from verse 11 to verse 21. Um, and, And the word motivation is the act or process of giving someone a reason for doing something. It is the reason for why you do what you do. And the first motivation that we looked at last time was the fear of the Lord. And that's laid out in verse 11 through 13. Tonight we're going to be looking at love for the Lord. And the next week we'll look at the new birth and the ministry of reconciliation. A couple other motivations that he speaks of. But the fear of the Lord uh, is really the first compelling motive that Paul lays out here. He says, knowing in verse 11, therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, it it, it provoked him to action. And, and it's not a scared of God fear. It is, it is a trembling before the awesomeness of God. Uh, it is knowing that one day you're going to stand before a holy God, give an account of your life, you, you will be weighed in the balance of why you live the Christian life you lived. That should create some kind of a setting you back, looking at your life and saying, am I living in a way that would prepare me for that day? Uh, do, do do I feel like I am prepared to meet the Lord in the way that I'm living my Christian life? I know that I'm saved, but but am I honoring God with my life? And I think it's important for us to step back and examine those things. He just got saying, if you notice in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 5, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done. Whether it be good or bad, the word bad there is the idea of being useful or useless, worthy or worthless. So, in last time I, I mentioned that, you know, fear directed toward really anything else in life becomes a stumbling block. Because one thing that fear does is fear controls. It has the ability to direct your life to things or away from things. It can enslave people. Fear of man enslaves people. People we saw being, being afraid of getting sick uh, during COVID, it enslaved them. I mean, there's still people enslaved by fear of disease and, and, and so scared to death of, di- of dying. Fear of provision, fear of money enslaves people. Fear for the future and uncertainty enslaves people. Let me say this, the only fear that liberates The only fear that liberates is fear of God. It is the only fear that you have that produces peace. When you fear anything else, it removes peace. The moment you fear God, it gives you peace. Does that make sense? Is that important to know? So people are like, what do you mean you're supposed to be afraid of God? You're supposed to fear God. Well, it's not like the idea of being afraid so much. It is, is a holy awe of God, and, and, and a good, healthy fear of God is essential. We looked at all this last time, but, but I just wanted to highlight some of that again. Now, I want to—and and, and what he was motivated by was that I'm going to stand before God, and I need to be prepared for that. I want to honor the Lord with my life. I want to be found faithful. I want to hear God say, well done, thou good and faithful servant— And I know that the world of people and lost souls don't understand that. And they're going to stand before a holy God unprepared. And and I'm motivated by the terror of the Lord to persuade men of that truth. Second motivation for living the Christian life is found in verse number 14. He says in verse 14, For the love of Christ constraineth us. The love of Christ constraineth us. It is the same word used in Acts chapter number 18 verse 5, when it says, and when, when he, was at, he was at the city of Corinth, and Timothy and Silas show up there, and it says, and Paul was pressed in spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. Something pushed him on the inside to preach to those that were in the city of Corinth. He, he, was, he was pressed inward, and it showed up outwardly. Now, the word constraineth, synecho, is a Greek word, it speaks of something that has taken hold of you. It is pressing you, urging you, compelling you. It's exciting something in you. It's motivating you. And what was constraining, pressing, and compelling Paul, he says, is the love of Christ. Now, the love of Christ can actually be taken one of two ways, even in the Greek rendering of it. It can speak of our love for Christ that constrains us. That I love Christ so much it is compelling me to a life of faithfulness to him. Or Christ's love for us constrains us is speaking of not my love for Christ, but Christ's love for me. So if you notice the reading in verse 14, for the love of Christ constrains us. So is that my love for him or his love for me? It could it literally be taken one of, uh, one of those two ways. I believe it's the second. I believe it's not my love for him that's compelling me to live for him. It's his love for me that's compelling me. And, and the reason, I think, is because the context is clear. Be- because look at the second half of verse 14. He says, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. He's talking about what the love of Christ did for him, right? Right? So so I believe that's the correct rendering. So it is the love that Christ has for us that is compelling. You know, also our love for Christ can be fickle, and I don't want to base my faithfulness to the Lord on something that's fickle. But Christ's love is faithful. We must build our motivation to live faithfully for the Lord on what the Lord has done for us. His great love for us is the motivation. In 1 John 4, 9 and 10, lays that out it tells us and this was manifest the love of god toward us because that god sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him and let's read verse 10 together herein is love notice not that i okay interrupted you isn't that you're not supposed to do that when you're reading it together josh okay sorry about that let's start back over on verse 10 Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we have a we respond to that. you see it? It's his love that causes the response. It's what he's done that now provokes the reaction from the believer. Turn with me to Ephesians three this is this is one of the most Wonderful little sections, Ephesians chapter 3, right before the book of the Philippians. Philippians, uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse number 16 and 17. Ephesians, one of my favorite books. Preached through it a couple different times. Um, love the book of Ephesians. Here in verse uh, 16 and 17... Paul is praying for the Ephesian believers. And he's praying for them to be strengthened with might in the inner man to be able to motivate them to live out their Christian life. And if you notice what he says in verse 16, that he would grant you, so he's praying for them, that God would grant you according to the riches of his glory And that's really one of the themes of Ephesians. It's called the bank book of Christianity. The riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the what? In the inner man. And and, and so strength for the believer is internal, not external. Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your what? In your hearts, and it's by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in in this essential truth, in love. So Paul sees love as what is going to strengthen that inner man. Now how does this happen? Well, he lays that out in verse 17. He says in verse 17 that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. The word dwell is a Greek word It simply means to settle down, to feel at home. It is to literally have Christ be at home in your hearts. Does Christ feel at home in your heart? When Christ dwells at home in your heart, the result is his love will permeate that. So you are to have his love, to have Christ dwell in your hearts. And then he uses another word, rooted. Rooted is, it means to be fixed, to be established, to be firm. You know, there's a lot of Christians that get blown over by trials of life. Because when you face a trial in life, what it does is it will test your faith in God's goodness, in His love. Most people are atheists not because they're intellectual atheists. They're atheists because they're emotional atheists. I've sat down with people before and after hours of conversing with them over their atheism, it wasn't some apologetic reason that I had to give them to cause them to believe I said, "What brought you to the conclusion that there is no God?" And they said, "Because my." Let a man tell me. In different people in the same sitting setting uh, situations, say these similar things, and he said, "My dad got cancer at fifty-six, and he died. And if there is a God, there is no way that He would allow that to happen. So there could not be an and so that so so he he concluded there is no God because there was bad things that happened. And so. When, when you're a Christian, you have to be rooted in the love of Christ so that you don't get blown over by the trials of life. Because life can hurt, right? Life can hurt. You know, the challenge of of, of, of finding out heavy things, painful situations. I mean, at the end of our Wednesday services, we read some heavy prayer requests, don't we? I mean, we just like, man, it's just... Sometimes you come here and you're like, you feel like you had a tough day and you hear some prayer requests, you're like, man, my life is so good. My day's nothing. I mean, to find out about somebody's child that died or somebody found out they had cancer or somebody found out they, you know, just some other heavy situation, you're like, you know what? Thank God. Thank God for His goodness and I'm going to pray for those, those dear souls. And... But God's Word is what teaches us about the love of Christ. That's where you learn it. You learn it from the Word of God. The more you learn about Christ, the more you will love Christ. And the more you love Christ, the more you will live for Him. When you understand the depths of Christ's love, trials don't cause you to question God's love. It draws you closer to your Father in Heaven. You don't want to distance yourself from Him. You want to be near Him. So he says, you, the love of Christ, Christ is to dwell in your hearts. You're rooted in it, and you're also grounded. Rooted and grounded. The word grounded there means to dwell. It's a construction word. It means to lay the foundation, literally, from which to build upon. We, we build upon Christ's love. Your, Christ dwells in you, your, your roots are deep in it, and it's the foundation stone that you build upon. Now, how do we get rooted and grounded in Christ's love? Well, verse 18 says, that you may be able to comprehend with all saints. And notice what he says here. What is the breadth and length and depth and height? little problem there, right? We live in a three-dimensional, four-dimensional time, but world. And here he just gave us a fourth dimension. And then he says in verse 19, "...and to know the love of Christ..." Which passeth knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, let me break this down. The word in the English "comprehend" uh, and "apprehend," so comprehend mentally and apprehend something, come from the stem from the same Latin word "prehendere." They both mean to grasp something. A monkey is said to have a prehensile tail, right? It's able to grasp a limb and hold on to that. Paul's prayer is that the believer would get a hold of the love of Christ, that they would literally grasp the reality of it and make it their own. And he prays, he's praying this, he's he's asking God that this might be given to us, that we might be able to comprehend or cling onto the amazing breadth, length, depth, and height of the amazing love that Christ has for us. I think it's interesting that verse 19 says this, that we might know the love of Christ, but then he says it passes knowledge. (laughs) Is that interesting? So you need to know the love of Christ that is beyond your finite ability. It's so amazing that when you get a hold of it, it goes so much further than you thought it would. Like, Like you begin to grasp some realities of God and the more you go the further and deeper the ocean of that glory is you're like I think I'm really beginning to understand and grasp the love of God and then and then it just explodes into a further depth that you would you would never have understood that that's the incredible thing is how, whatever however good you think God is it's it's like an eight ounce cup of the understanding and there's still a whole ocean of his goodness left that you don't even understand yet. We're going to get to heaven and be like, it was beyond an ocean, Josh, you didn't even get close. The ocean's like a little trickle of water compared to the depth of that love, that, that glory. That's why Paul said, and, and Paul saw a glimpse of heaven, didn't he? I mean, Corinthians talks about that. He said, I was caught up into the third heaven. It's all things that were just beyond understanding, beyond words. I couldn't even, couldn't even grasp it all. And he says, the things that we've gone through, Romans 8, he says, are not even worthy to be compared. The suffering I've gone through, he said, I can't even bring it up. Like, like God, you should owe me something. What he's given us, he said, is not even the sufferings I've gone through, don't even compare with the glory which will be revealed in us. So, so just just begin to lay a hold of your mind, the, 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 the greatness of, God, give me the ability to just grasp the hem of your garment of your love. If I could just touch that, what that could do to my soul. I mean, we could have the worst day in America. And we can end it by saying, but God loves me and I'm saved. <laughs> I went fishing with uh, some guys Monday. We went up to Canada for a day trip, asked to go and went up there and uh, the fishing guide said it was the worst day of fishing he had all year and he had a few choice words and it was just interesting the guys I was with were Christians and I was trying to get some conversation going the guy didn't want anything to do with any kind of Christian conversation and uh, I I was uh and, and the guys were like you know it's just so funny we're we're not catching fish but he's the only one on the boat that it's killing him i mean this guy is just going nuts and he's the guide and and, uh, and they said you know it's just just the lost people don't have the joy of the Lord, man. It's like you put it all in a box, right? It's like I live, I live in the back seat. It's the Lord that's leading. I believe the Lord's in control if he wants me to catch fish or doesn't want me to catch fish. Think about the worst day you had this year. What if God wanted it to go that way? Would it change how you saw that day? What if God wanted that tractor with the hay bales to pull out in front of you when you were on your way to, right? Say, why would God do that? Maybe you and I need patience. You know, when you, when you live under the sovereignty of God, you can, you, can, you can begin to see a world that, you know, that, that, that control is just an illusion. I mean, what do you think you control? Well, what are you in control of? You think you're in control of your life, right? How many times have you said something you didn't want to say? Think something you didn't want to think. Do something you didn't want to do. Anybody with me? Yeah, we think we're in control till the toddler comes back. <laughs> He's like, oh, you thought you put me down at two? I'm back. Those zinead drivers wake me up every week. <laughs> Amen. It's Probably some of you guys, you test my sanctification. I'm going to see if pastor really believes what he preaches. You know, I'm going to light him up. Tinted window dudes. What's going on here, man? I have felt the flesh come out. Yeah. But you know what? No matter what happens in our life, we can say, you know what? It's, it's just such a small thing in comparison to the spiritual realities that I know from God's Word. You know, I know someday I'm going to get heavy news. I'll get the call that a loved one in the church, a family member, a parent. A few years ago, right before a Wednesday night service, family called and said, your grandmother just passed away. And I got up and preached five minutes later. And, you know, those, those things happen, right? Right. How could you preach five minutes later? Because I know grandma's in heaven. And she would be like, preach it, boy. <laughs> so, you know, what, what what are you living on? Like, what, what are you what are you going to face those days with? Like when you get that call, when you get that situation, like how are you navigating that? Do you think it's just luck? Are you just crossing your fingers? I think the dumbest thing in the world is when people are like, knock on wood. I'm like, seriously. Like, where did that come from, a beaver? Like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> like, knock on wood. Some of y'all need to be embarrassed like, yeah, preacher busted on that the other day. I can't do that. <laughs> Silly stuff. Like, you want to go rub on your rabbit's foot? You think that's helping? Seriously? What are we in? India? Listen. We, need to, we, need to, we don't live like that, do we? I mean, we, we, we need to comprehend the love of Christ that passes knowledge. And he gives a four-dimension reality to this in verse 18. How broad is Christ's love? Well, it's broad enough to gather Jew and Gentile together into one family and wrap its arms all around the world from every tongue, nation, and tribe. Just read Revelation 7. How long is it? In the book of Ephesians 1.4, it says, According as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. That we would be holy and without blame before him in love. It's long enough to have loved us before we were born and will eternally love us into the kingdom. How deep is his love? Well, Ephesians 2 tells us we were dead in our sins under the influence of this world in Satan. And in Ephesians 2 verse 4 says that it showed up in, in this. But God who is rich... In love for His great, uh, rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us. Even when we were dead in sins hath quickened us together by grace you are saved. And Psalms 40 puts it this way. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit out of the miry clay and set my feet upon a rock. Establish my goings. How high is the love of God? Well, it's high enough that Ephesians one three says He's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And then in Ephesians two verse six says and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. I mean, it elevates us to the heavens. His love wraps around the world with its saving arms. It's long enough to embrace us before we were born and holds us after we die. It continues for eternity. It's deep enough to grasp us from the lowest sin and take us to the highest realms of heaven. And Paul's like, I'm just praying that you'll be able to grasp that. And this prayer also involves our living. The grasping is taking this love and using it. It is something we can actually use. In other words, you can make it your own. Like, it, it you, you you begin to possess that. Verse 19 says, To know the love of Christ. It doesn't say to know the love for Christ, but the love of Christ. The love that Christ has had for us, we're able to get a hold of it and use it. John 13, let me just give you a few verses about this. John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. How? Now Now, he's... He's giving them something that they can use. You're able to love one another as I have loved you. John fifteen nine. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. Continue to do that. Verse 12, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Ephesians five twenty five. Husbands, love your wife as Christ also loved the church. Ephesians 5, 2, Walk in love as Christ loved us. Romans 8.37, how do we overcome everything? Nay, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. It's the love of Christ that just empowers us in every direction. Now Paul concludes Ephesians 3 by saying in verse 20, Now unto him that is able to do, notice the superlatives here, exceeding abundantly above all. I mean, is is that a pretty heavy statement? Exceeding abundantly above. Above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in God. Where's the power at? It's working in us. That power is literally working in us. The love of Christ in us allows us to do beyond what is humanly possible. And I'm sure you've seen that in people, haven't you? I have. I've seen people forgive others, and I'm thinking there's no, there's no way on this side of heaven. There's been at least three people in this church who had a, four people in this church that had a loved one murdered, a spouse or a parent or a sibling, and they've come to me, and I've talked with them, and they shared with me some things, who said they forgave the murderer totally, and they, now their heart's desire is to see that person saved. Is that pretty, pretty heavy? It's pretty heavy, isn't it? I've seen people do things that are just forgiving, which I think is at the top of the list of difficult things to do for people. Even though we've been forgiven, sometimes people struggle with that. We all have faced that. But if you want to know what compelled the early believers to live and to die so faithfully for the Lord and just never stop, they were relentless, they were faithful... All the way to the end. They were just compelled by the love of God. It's just incredible. It's just incredible. Now, now flip back to 2 Corinthians 5. He says, for the love of Christ constrains us. Because we thus judge that if one died for all. Then we're all dead. Now what, what does it mean that all were dead? Well, death in the Bible doesn't speak of somebody ceasing uh, from living. The Bible uh, uses the word death to speak of separation. There's three types of death in the Bible. There's physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death. Physical death is separation of the body from the soul. Spiritual death is separation of the soul from God. You can be alive physically and dead spiritually. That's what Ephesians 2.1 says. You hath he made alive who are dead in sins or quickened. And, and the third type of death is, is the second death, which is eternal death. That happens you're, when you die physically having never been born again. You're, you're forever separated from God. In a real punishment in hell. And so, so the, the, if he, uh, Christ's death for us is what motivated by God, God initiated the relationship. So notice that one died for all, Christ's death for us, again, was motivated by God. God initiated the relationship. You know, when, when Christ died for us, it wasn't, it would have been one thing for all of the world around Jesus on the cross saying, please die for us, we love you, you know, we, we just please, 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 and pleading with him, and we'll serve you, you know, please save us from hell. That would have been incredible grace for him to die for us. But that wasn't the picture. And, and nobody asked him to do it. And when he said he would do it, his own disciples rebuked him for it. I mean he had everything working against him. Except his love for his father. And you know what he said in John 16? He said that the world may know that I love the father. As the father gave me commandment. Even so I do arise let us go hence. And he got up from the upper room. And began to walk toward the garden of Gethsemane. It's actually I believe John 14 verse 31. It was the love of the father that that propelled him forward. And so... So we see that reality. Secondly, let's look at the right response to God's love in verse 15. He says in that he died for all that they which live should not henceforth or from now on live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Romans 12:1 calls this our reasonable service, doesn't it? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. In other words, go all in. Holy and acceptable unto God, that is your reasonable service for you to fully surrender your life to God is the most reasonable thing that could be said. Now this applies to, uh, first this applies to one certain group of people. Verse 15 says, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves. So the alive ones are those who were born again. They're brought into spiritual life. The Bible tells us in John 1 that as many as received him, To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Notice, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We're born of God. You become a child. If you're if you're here tonight and you've never fully grasped the depths of your sin, that you, if you stood before God, you would factually be found guilty before holy God. You've never fully surrendered your life to Christ. You never confess Jesus to be Lord of your life, turning from your sins, turning to Christ, crying out, believing that Jesus died, was buried and rose again. If you've never done that, you're going to stand before God guilty and you will be judged and you will pay the price for your sins. That will for sure happen. It will happen. And you'll remember for all of eternity, me saying this, people in hell, there's, there's a guy in hell and all he wanted was a drop of water and that all of his family would know hell is real. That's why at every funeral I do, I don't care if the person would be saved or not. I say this. And I, I say, listen, your loved one wants you to know this. And sometimes people will be like, well, you know, that person, hey, I know where they're at. They didn't believe in God. Hey, whether, whether they're in heaven or hell, they want you to know the gospel. I preach the gospel at every funeral I do. So how do people take that? Well, they take it. <laughs> and it's usually a good response. Because the gospel is... is, is is there anything more loving I could give them? I mean, the greatest expression of love that ever happened, you share at a funeral. It's your only hope. So, so we're, at, we're at a place of death, and let me tell you about the only one who ever rose from the dead. You, you want eternal life? You want to live forever? You want to conquer death? You want to see your loved one again? If they're saved, you want to see him again? Let me tell you how. Because I can tell you, if your loved one's in heaven, they're like, don't, don't worry about me, I'm okay. Uh, you need to make sure you're ready for heaven. Because you, because I tell you what, the order you get, the faster life goes, doesn't it? And I don't need anybody else to remind me that my daughter's getting married this Saturday, okay? <laughs> you got three days, preacher. You, got it. you know, I was walking to my office this evening, and outside my door was a pile of tissue boxes that said, Pastor... We thought you may need these. Your loving interns. <laughs> well, they're going to need a new job. I don't know, is it? We got to work this thing out. You know, we still got three days. It ain't there yet. <laughs> no. Yeah. Hey, everybody wants to come see me cry. Oh, that's a blessing. Let me get focused. You know, the, the, I, I think Paul understood this so clearly. Uh, Galatians er, talks about it in Second Corinthians, but, but in Galatians 2, he understood the reasonable service. He said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life that I now live, in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. It's that love that constrains us. He died the death We deserve that we might gain a life we did not earn. There's a vivid painting of Christ wearing his crown of thorns as he stands before Pilate and the mob displayed in the Art Museum of Dusseldorf, Germany. And under that painting by Sternberg are the words, This have I done for thee, what hast thou done for me? And that compelled the author of the hymn that carries that same title. Let me give you some keys to living in power by the love of Christ, thirdly. I think if we're going to live with the power of Christ as a motivation, we have to guard our hearts from the love of the world. Um, 1 John 2.15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Uh, Let me say this. It is okay to enjoy things God has provided in the world for us. I think sometimes people can become legalistic in this and some people can get too much of a license with this. First uh, Timothy six seventeen is a good balance. It says, charge them that are rich in the world, that they might not be high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. So even to the rich, he says, listen, God gave us all these things to enjoy. It's nothing wrong. It's one thing to enjoy things God gives us in life. It's another thing to love them in such a way that you live for them. Because whatever we love, we live for. Is that true? And it's usually the person who says stuff like this, you know, preacher, I'm struggling with giving something up in my life because it's and you know why? Because it's they, they're, they're wrestling with going from enjoying to loving. And you know the difference because it will pull you away from the spiritual things. It'll pull you out of church. It'll pull you. Yeah, I haven't had time to read. I haven't had time to pray. I haven't had to, Listen, balance is important. If, if you can't keep the spiritual things first, why do you think God put church on the first day of the week? Is he trying to tell us something? That's why get up early. Spend time with the Lord. Put him first place. Uh, don't enjoy things in life. Praise God for them. If you, if you have a hobby you enjoy, God, thank you for that. Thank you for allowing somebody to go out and do something they enjoy. Thank you for these things. Thank you for nature. Thank you for whatever things that God gives you to enjoy. Thank you for a nice home or a nice car or a nice job or whatever you have. But Lord, let me make sure my love is for you. My enjoyment is just, that's just a secondary thing, right? Secondly, learn, learn Christ. Keys to living in power by the love of Christ. Guard your heart from loving the world. Learn of Christ. The more you, again, learn about Christ, the more you'll love Him. Study the Word of God. Read the Word of God. Sacrifice to know it. Thirdly, love involves yielding to the one you love. Romans 6.13 says this, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. But then notice, but rather yield ye your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For you, it says, as those that are alive from the dead, you don't keep giving in. The, the, the word yielding, surrender, uh, you, you allow that thing to, to, to control you. Stop doing that. Don't yield to, to the wrong. Number four, understand you have been purchased by God. You belong to Him. First Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 tells us that. Titus two fourteen says, He gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify Himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. And then also, see everything you do in life as an opportunity to glorify God. Um, Romans 14, 7 through 9 is that. For for none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord; whether we die, we die unto the Lord. For whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. And in Colossians three twenty three, what, whatever you do, do it all heartily, as under the Lord, not as under men. Listen, that's where you can go out and enjoy things and glorify God in what you enjoy. Like you can worship Him through those things. It, you know, even to employees, Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, 6, that when you are an employee, it says, don't do it with eye service, as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. You, you work for your boss like you would be serving Christ. You're like, eh, I can tell you, my boss ain't Christ. And maybe you're feeling that way, but sometimes he lets us face some difficulties, doesn't he? I mean, just ask Joseph. But what did Joseph say? What they meant for evil, God meant for good. You see him resting in the sovereignty of God. You see the difference? You know, Joseph could have been so bitter in that prison. But when he saw his brothers years later and they came, he wept and he loved them and he provided for them. Fourthly, a right response to others, verse 16. 2 Corinthians five sixteen he says wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Day, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. That that can be kind of a difficult verse to understand. You kind of read that again. That's when if you study the Bible, you need to slow down on verses like that and say, you know what? I understood verse fifteen clear, verse fourteen clear, verse sixteen. It kind of you know, the wording's weird. I'm not quite sure what he means that I don't know Christ after the flesh. What is he even talking about here? So so what's it first first of all mean that Paul says? Wherefore, henceforth, like from now on, we don't know any man after the flesh. So what does he mean there? Well, he's just been talking in context about being gripped by the love of God, right? So he has been so gripped by the love of God that it caused a radical change in how he views people. Because to the Jew, were they racist? Yes. We ain't going through Samaria. What the woman at the well say when Jesus says, hey, "Can you give me some water?" She's like, "You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. You guys don't have any dealings with us. Why are you even talking to me?" I mean, even his disciples are like, "He's talking to that Samaritan, and it's a woman. Like, what's he doing?" So, so, so they, they, there was racism involved there. Um, that they, they were they were so focused on the exterior, right? I mean, how many times did he have to say, "You clean the outside of the cup, but the inside's full of extortion," Matthew twenty three. After Paul came to Christ, his eyes were open to what true righteousness was. It was internal, not external. I mean, when he, when, when, he, when he shared his testimony to a crowd of Jews, they listened to him all the way up to this point. Listen to what happens in Acts 22. He's sharing his testimony to a Jewish crowd in Jerusalem. Acts 22, and he said unto them unto me, depart, for I will send thee far hence uh, unto the Gentiles. And they gave him audience unto this word, then lifted up their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, it is not fit that he should live. Is that incredible? He says, he says, they're all like, wow, the Lord appeared to you. And, but he says, and then he, the Lord sent me to the Gentiles. And they're like, let him die. You know I mean? You know who the Gentiles are? Yeah. It's usins. <laughs> When Peter led Cornelius and his household and friends and family to the Lord, Acts 11, verse 1. After Peter led all these, all these Gentiles to Christ, Acts 11, he gets back home. This is what happens. And the apostles and brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. I mean, these are the people who were like the early believers, leaders even. And when Peter was come to Jerusalem, they were of the circumcision contended with him, saying, Thou wentest into men uncircumcised, did eat with them? I mean, yeah, yeah. there's a whole bunch of people who gave their life to Christ. They didn't care about any of that. But Peter rehearsed the matter from the beginning and expounded in order unto them, saying, and, and he shares the whole story. And in Acts eleven seventeen, 17, it says, for as much then, and this is how they finally respond after they find out this is God's doing. For as much then God gave them like gift as he did unto us who believed the Lord Jesus Christ. What was I that I could withstand God? Peter's like, I God did this. When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. I mean, so so what, what he's saying in verse 16 is this. The answer to racism is not legislation, which can be good. It's not education. It's not affirmative action. It's not reparations. The answer is the gospel. The thing that caused him to say, I don't see people in the flesh anymore. I see human beings made in the image of God. You know, the world wants to talk about racism. We don't have racism at Lighthouse, right? This is a unified body. I'm telling you, it really is. This this is insane. We got people from all walks of life, all different nationalities, all different backgrounds, all different legal backgrounds. And it fits, brother. I've had both people who've been in legal situations say, I'm not sure if I can come to your church because there's so many officers. I've had officers come say, I don't know if I can come to church. We've, we've arrested so many of those guys. And I'm like, just come together. We bring the cops and robbers together, baby. We just all love it. But you know what? You don't see each other in that. You see, the, the, it removes the flesh. That's my brother and sister in Christ. Amen? That's, isn't that the truth? And Paul says, I don't know people after the flesh anymore. In Galatians, he went so far as to say, in Christ there's not male, female, bond, or free. Uh, we're all one in Christ. You know, in, in America today, you're almost afraid to quote some of those verses. <laughs> you have to really give context to them, don't you? There is male and female, okay? They are not the same. But spiritually speaking, y'all got me? <laughs> spiritually speaking. <clears throat> uh, now, now, and then he says this. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, now, yet now henceforth know we him no more than I close with this. Prior to salvation, he not only had a wrong view of men, but he had a wrong view of Christ. He saw Christ as a false teacher. He saw Christ as part of a new religious system, an opponent to the true God who must be stopped. But now Paul viewed Christ through the lens of truth, not as some false teacher, but holy God made flesh, Savior of the world, who Paul was now willing to lay his life down for. You know, when your eyes get open to the love of God, it radically transforms how you view people. So let me ask you, how do you view people? How do you view people? How do you view this president or the prior president or the... Senators and legislators and your principals of your schools and boss and co-workers and neighbors. and How do you view them? We need to to see people with the lens that Christ had for us. I think it might be that tonight would be a good night to say, God, give me your eyes. Lord, I want you to be at home in my heart. I, I want to I grasp your love. I, I want to understand it. The breadth and length and depth and height of that love. Gaze upon His glory. I would challenge you, if you've been dried up spiritually at all, read the book of Ephesians every single day for the next seven days. Just, And if reading is a real struggle, just read Ephesians 1 every single day just just love it just read it and read it and read it and read it let his word just fill your heart see what he's done for you read about the crucifixion get away somewhere get up early and read the crucifixion story and walk outside and look at your world god give me give me those eyes let me see them you know what we'll find ourselves patient forgiving kind evangelistic We need we need to be motivated in a Christian life, don't we? All of us will face struggles in our motivation. Let's be motivated by our fear of God that God, I'm going to stand before you one day and I want to be found faithful. And, and Lord, I, I I need your love to compel me. Because, because God, if I would be honest, it is so easy for self love, isn't it? I mean, that's why I love others as ourselves. It's so easy to put myself in front of others. God, help me to love others first. Lord, help me to see them as you would have me see them. And, um, and so let's learn of Christ. Let's study him. Let's, let's read about him. Let's listen to his word and teaching and preaching about him. The, the world will be transformed by one soul at a time. Sunday, we learned about Andrew, the humble evangelist. And, and all of us, if, if we just wrap our heart around these truths, I'm, I can tell you something: this church would explode as it is. I mean, we had seventy-three people in Foundation Sunday. There's so many new people coming, so many people growing. We need your faithfulness too. We need we need teachers to new teachers step up. People growing, people discipling. But this world's dying, going to hell. Time is running out. The Lord's coming back and let's let's be busy about what really matters amen